but I would just want to wrap up a couple of things with Acts 15. We're going to try to make it all the way through verse um, 35 tonight. But then next week, I want, you to, I want to look with you at verses 36 through 41. Because something goes on in there that I think would be profitable for the church to consider. Uh, for the church of Jesus Christ to consider. And us as well. But um, what I need to do now is read you really the last half of this, this whole story concerning the Jerusalem Council. It will begin at verse 13, and we'll have to go through verse 35. You follow as I read. And after they had become silent, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, listen to me. Simon has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, After this I will return and we will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will set it up, so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who does all these things. Known to God from eternity are all his works. Therefore I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God, but that we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood. For Moses has had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city, being read in the synagogue every Sabbath. Then it pleased the apostles and elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, who was also named Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brethren. They wrote this letter by them. The apostles, the elders, and the brethren to the brethren who are in the, uh, of the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Greetings. Since we have heard that some who went out from us have troubled you with words unsettling your soul, saying, you must be circumcised and keep the law to whom we, we gave no such commandment, it seemed good to us, being assembled with one accord, to send chosen men to you, with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who will also report the same things by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that you abstain from the things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourself from these, you will do well. Farewell. So then, so when they were sent off, they came to Antioch, and when they had uh, gathered the multitude together, they delivered the letter. When they had read it, they rejoiced over its encouragement. Now Judas and Silas, themselves being prophets also, exhorted and strengthened the brethren with many words. And after they had stayed there for a time, they were sent back with the greetings from the, from the brethren to the apostles. However, it seemed good to Silas to remain there. Paul and Barnabas also remained in Antioch teaching and preaching the words of the Lord with many others also. Now, guys, what, you, what we have read here in Acts 15, again, is an event. What you've heard is the, the, the record of an event that unfolded in the life of the church. It was created because there was, there was a theological controversy. And the theological controversy had to do with the necessity or lack of necessity, of being circumcised to be saved. And so to answer this problem, there was a, there was a conflab, a, a, an assembly that was called in Jerusalem. And you'll notice that it was a fairly large conflab uh, to discuss this issue and, and what would be the church's position. Now, we've kind of worked our way through that. And as the, as the council opens, you get a speech by Peter, 
We looked at that last week. And then you get a brief speech by Barnabas and Paul, at least a, a summary statement that's made in verse 12 as to what Paul and Barnabas shared. And then verse 13 introduces the final speaker, or at least the final recorded speaker of this conference. His name is James. James, who if, if anyone had any clout with the Judaizers, uh, it would have been James. Because it's James, in Galatians chapter 2, verse 12, it's James that they alluded to as the one who was their authority base. So now James, who is the last speaker and seems to be the presiding officer of this conference and is the one who is the half-brother of Christ, he's the one that wrote the book of James, he's the last speaker... Um, and he's got clout like nobody else has, particularly over this issue because the Judaizers are the ones stirring the pot. So he opens again uh, with this, I mean, it opens by referring to how men fell silent before listening to James. And then in verse 14, he refers to Peter by his Jewish name, Simon, which is a rather interesting note that he would use that name as opposed to the name that we know Peter as, but he refers to Simon and then summarizes here in verse 14 what God is up to. And really, there's, a, there's just a wonderful sentence found in verse 14. Simon has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. Now, ladies and gentlemen, who would be included in that people that God is taking out for his name? That would be you. That it, what is God up to? I'll tell you what he's up to. He is creating a people for his name. You know, the, the language, particularly in the Old Testament, that is so um, dear to me that I love to use is, is, is language out of the book of uh, Zechariah, chapter 3, where it describes us as a branch plucked from the fire. That's what you are. You're a, blank, a branch plucked from the fire. And, but because you are, you are a people for God's name. Guys, God is still doing that. He's still taking out of them, out of this Gentile world, a people for his name. That's what you are. That's who you are. You're God's people, branches plucked from the fire and uh, um, uh, designed to live for his glory. That's, that's who we are. Then in verse 15, he refers to a statement made by Amos. This is a quote in verses 16 and 17, uh, 16, yes, and 17, that comes out of Amos chapter 9. And what you have there is James alluding to Old Testament proof that Christianity is nothing more than the fulfillment of Judaism. That is, Christianity has Judaistic roots. And this, this reference in verse 17, that all the Gentiles um, are going to come and be a part of this, this uh, will be called by my name, is, is to state by James, his, I think his, his strategy is to demonstrate that, that Gentile, that, that including Gentiles in the people of God, was not some kind of afterthought. This is something that the prophets predicted. This is something that the Old Testament prophets were well aware of, that, that there were going to be 
a Gentile um, uh, inclusion as a part of the people of God. Simply James's effort at proving that what's going on with Gentiles has been predicted from God by God for uh, quite a while. Uh, verse 18, known to God from eternity are all his works. Gang, I don't know of a better summary of the sovereignty of God than what you find in verse 18. Notice what is said there. Known to God from eternity are all his works. Now, if we could rearrange just the sentence order, not change the words, just rearrange the sentence order, it, goes, it would go like something like this. All his works are known to God from eternity. What a wonderful positive assertion. All of his works are known to God from eternity. This inclusion of Gentile people has been known from eternity, says this text. But it says more than that. It says that all of his works, all of his works. Now, let me ask you a question. Would you be one of those works? I bet you would be. And here it says that all of his works, you being one of them, were known unto God from eternity. Um, God is not... Oh, I better not go there. Uh, gang, just understand that James is using as a part of his argument to uh, dispel any theological error. What he refers to is God's great sovereignty over all his works. Everything. This is not some afterthought. Gentile inclusion is not some afterthought. This is something that God has planned uh, from all eternity. Great little statement. Great little statement of God's um, sovereignty tucked into verse 18. Therefore, uh, oh, and then verse 19, what we get are his conclusions. That is, uh, James is the last recorded speaker. And he has, he has uh, pointed out that God has always intended to call out a people from the Gentile nations, to call them by his name. That's always been a part of his plan. That's, so that is his argument that he uses. And then he comes to the time where he's ready to make some applications, some uh, conclusions about what he's just said. Therefore, I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God but that we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood. All right, guys, there's several things in those two little verses that I want to draw your attention to, particularly in verse 20. But let me, let me handle verse 19 first. Um, there is a wonderful principle that is wrapped up in what James is doing here. Therefore, um, I judge that we should not trouble. But guys, um, this, is a, this is a text that is used... Um, um, rather widely, particularly in Roman Catholicism, as a, as a proof text for papal decisions being passed down to the church. Uh, it appears, uh, if you read verse 19 isolated from the rest of this chapter, that James has come to a conclusion and has therefore made a proclamation that is to be distributed to the church. But that is hardly, this is not some kind of papal-like decision. You'll notice in the letter, the letter that is written beginning in verse 23, look at verse 25. It seemed good to us being assembled with one accord to send chosen men to you, our beloved Barnabas and, and Paul. Now, guys, 
Look at um, uh, verse 23. They wrote this letter by them, the apostles, the elders, and the brethren. What I'm suggesting to you, ladies and gentlemen, is there is, is a marvelous principle of church government tucked into this. This is not some kind of papal-like decision. What James is recording and is um, uh, describing is a unanimous decision that has been made by the apostles, the elders, and the brethren. He is articulating it, and the letter is sent out under the heading of all of those, the apostles, the elders, and the, uh, the brethren, and, the, and me. Um, but the principle that I think is contained in that is that there is always to be a plurality of leadership and eldership. Gang, the normal evangelical church these days is nothing more than a benevolent dictatorship. And you better hope that the dictator is benevolent because it can get pretty ugly in a church when there is not a benevolent dictator. And very frankly, ladies and gentlemen, it works in some instances. And yet what you find here is a plurality of leadership, a plurality of eldership, a decision made by the, the common, uh, a unanimous mindset of the leadership, and that is the thing that is distributed. Not one voice, not one personage making a decision and saying, this is what, uh, is what it's going to be. But there is a plurality of government, there is a plurality of decision making. And I think that's, I think that's at least what we're striving to produce here at Gracie Van, a a plurality of eldership, even a plurality of vision. I'm not the only one that has a vision in this church, ladies and gentlemen. I could tell you about some of those, but we don't have time. Um, it was a unanimous decision, and the letter, as you see, goes out under the name of the apostles, the elders, and the brethren. That's in verse 23. Now, look with me at verse 20, because I really would like to spend most of my time in verse 20. Um, because the decisions have been made, the conclusions have been come to. And so now the issue of, of communication comes up. How are we going to communicate to the church our decision? And so they decide, let's write a letter. Let's send it out by uh, Paul and Silas. And we're going to send Barsabbas and, uh, and Judas. No, Barsabbas and somebody else. Um, we're going to send Silas and Barsabbas with Paul and somebody else. Barnabas. Yeah, that's good. Uh, the four of them, we're going to send these two guys to make sure that everybody knows that Paul and Barnabas aren't lying to you. But they're going to communicate what they decided via a letter. Now, and, and here's, and by the way, we don't really need to spend much time on verses 24 through 29 because that's just the, the summary of what's already been said. But in verse 20, there's a word in there that leads to, I think, a, a, I hope, a, a helpful discussion. We need to write to them. And here's what we need to tell them. To abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood. Again, the word that I think is, that is important for you to see um, is the word abstain. Um, these people are asked to abstain from certain things. Now, guys... Um, the word abstain um, hints at something. That is, they are told to abstain. That is, you have, I mean, the implication is, you have certain liberties that, you are, that are certainly yours. But we are asking you 
to abstain from legitimate uh, liberties that are yours. It's an interesting word. It's not some kind of, um, we're telling you, don't you dare. But abstain implies some kind of self-control that is set, that is, limits are set on the exercise of my Christian liberty. Here is my body of liberty, but I am asking you, says the church, to abstain from the full use and full exercise of all of those liberties for the health and well-being of all of the uh, um, participants in the church. What I'm suggesting, ladies and gentlemen, is what you find in verse 20 is the, is the argument, it's the Pauline argument of 1 Corinthians 8 and 1 Corinthians, uh, 12, 1 Corinthians 10. It is the argument of the weaker brother. And um, uh, it, it is the recognition that there are those among us that indeed have certain um, um, convictions that they don't need to have, but they have them. And therefore, Paul is calling us, and this letter calls us, not to ride roughshod over those convictions that are even unfounded. There are certain folks with, um, with scruples about doing certain things um, that um, they don't need to have, but in recognition that they do have them, I'm asking you to abstain. I'm asking you to limit that which is a legitimate expression of Christian liberty. That is Paul's argument in 1 Corinthians 8 about the weaker brother. You know the, the, the argument about the weaker brother and, and um, uh, if you, what you do causes your brother to sin, it is sin for you. That whole argument in 1 Corinthians 10 about eating meat sacrificed to idols, it, it doesn't mean anything, Paul says, but I'm not going to eat it because I don't want those people out there to stumble over what I'm doing. Now, ladies and gentlemen, there is a vast difference between legality and abstention. There is a vast difference between turning something into law and appeal based on Christian charity to abstain. One's beautiful, the other's ugly. And that's what I think you find wrapped up in this word abstain. Guys, being tainted by legalism doesn't make you more spiritual. It makes you less. You are the weaker brother. But you are the brother. And because you're the brother, I'm supposed to respect, to respect your existence with inside the body, and therefore I would not dream of exercising my liberties at your expense. Therefore, I must abstain. <laughs> now guys, that, that has a lot of application among us. Just a whole lot. I, I say again, you know, if you are one of those weaker brothers, understand this. Your legal rigidities, your scruples, that these convictions that are unfounded, that doesn't make you more spiritual. That makes you less. It means that you're, that you're less mature than the others. But the more mature, who are not the weaker brothers, who are the stronger brothers, are to respect the existence of the weaker brother among us and alter our behavior in light of them. 
You willing to do that? I certainly hope so. Ladies and gentlemen, I am one who loves expressions of Christian liberty, but not to the expense of brothers. And uh, it is one thing to say, thou shalt not. It's another thing to say, I won't do it just because I love my brother. That's legitimate. But to impose law on the, on the Christian church that doesn't grow out of uh, scriptural mandate is to, is to make yourself into a Pharisee. But to look at those liberties and say, yes, I do have those liberties. But I'm not about to exercise them. Because I wouldn't dream of hurting those who are among us. That's beautiful. Guys, I mean, I, I got, I'm not sure I should use my illustrations. Because I'm thinking some of you would, would really get upset, which is unfortunate. But, you know, l- let me give you I mean, one, one story that occurred in my, in my, this wasn't in a church I pastored, but it was in a church that was down the road. There was, a, and, and by, no, it was in, I was in Ocala, it was in Orlando, so that's down the road. Um, about 72 miles. Um, but um, this church was a, you know, I, I'm a Presbyterian. I'm sorry, you're, you're stuck with an ordained Presbyterian. And this was a Presbyterian church and a PCA church. And um, this one brother had graduated from Westminster Seminary. If you know anything about Westminster Seminary, uh, I mean, they are, I know you all think that I'm brilliant. Don't you? <laughs> I hope. But those guys, those are the smart guys, those Westminster grads. That's the home of Gresham Machen, and uh, I mean, those are some smart boys. Anyway, um, this was a, a Westminster grad, and he had come out uh, to plant a church in Orlando, and he was really committed to this, this Christian liberty thing. And so it was his determination that when in the exercise of the Lord's Supper, that Jesus did not drink grape juice. He really, it, I mean, it was wine that they drank in the New Testament. Therefore, they were going to have wine. At the, um, at the Lord's Supper. Guys, uh, uh, let me inter- interrupt this story. When I was in Budapest, I had the Lord's Supper twice. Guess what they served? <laughs> they laugh at us with our grape juice. They just think we're the silliest things in, the, in America. But anyway, we are. But in, this guy thought that, you know, we're going to have wine. In, we're going to have real wine in communion. Well, it created such a stir in this church. And, and, and of course, he was going to defend his position. So he, this was the solution. This was the solution. On Sunday mornings, and, and <laughs> there wasn't but about 60 of them in the whole church. And so they, they divided the 60 chairs into 30 over here and 30 over there, whatever the numbers were. And those who wanted grape juice sat over here. And those who wanted wine sat over here. Is that not utter foolishness? You know, okay, you may be right. You may be right. But is there not some room within us to say, I have some Christian liberties that I plan to shelve in the interest of the people of God. I know, yes, I got this thing, but I am going to abstain. That's the argument of the weaker brother. Now, I will say, ladies and gentlemen, there is a time to look at the weaker brother and say, weaker brother, grow up. Uh, that's the, the, the only solution for you, big boy, is to get stronger. You're being an idiot. But short of that, 
Guys, we're supposed to live in recognition that the body of Christ is made up of a bunch of really weird people. You're a bunch of weird ducks. And I celebrate the fact that you are. But, you know, so we have to um, adjust so that the, the, um, the sensibilities... Uh, of the people of God are not unnecessarily and unduly offended just because we're going to insist on our rights. Guys, let me tell you something. The gospel is offensive enough. We don't need to add to it. You know, I've always said, you've heard me say this before. You know, people from time to time leave this church and and sometimes they leave for decent reasons. Sometimes I, I don't think they're very decent reasons, but... You know, I always get so grieved over, I mean, I take it so personally, which is my own sin, and you can, um, you can send me to some kind of uh, counselor for it, if you like. Um, but when people come and say, I'm leaving because you said that Jesus was the only way to heaven, and I say, yes, I did say that. And may I help you to the door. I mean, there's, there's one sense when the gospel offends, we can celebrate. But when we're the offensive parties, come on, shape up, modify, you know, breathe deeply, you know that. That's what I think you find in this. Uh, there, there's, some, there's some more in here, and I've got six minutes. The idea of um, um, abstaining from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled. That from things strangled in there. That, that is, that I'm going to eat meat that was not punctured. It was strangled. And that was considered a delicacy. Um, if, it was, if it was killed like this, for some reason it was considered uh, higher quality meat. And when you stabbed it or chopped off its head or something. That was considered highbrow. My point is this. There are some things that you really enjoy. That you really get a kick out of. You're going to have to abstain from enjoying. I'd like to do this. I have liberty to do this, but I'm not going to do it. I could list for you a half a dozen things. None of us would agree about in this room. But I'm telling you, this big body of Christian liberty that we need to fight for, it needs to be shrunk just because we love. Just because we care about how that impact, what impact it's going to make on those who watch us. Um, I have to tell you that while I was in Budapest, and I was taking the sacraments um, in this. I mean, it was a it was a group of 25 Hungarians, and they had communion every Sunday, and they they met at four o'clock in the, on Sunday afternoon, and I preached with a translator, and and um, it was really fun. But um, they had communion afterwards, and I sat there and you know drank the wine of, in the the, uh, the communion, and I felt guilty the whole time. <laughs> that just shows you how fouled up I am. Uh, um, um, okay, also, you'll, you'll notice the things that he asked for, to abstain from. Um, from things polluted by idols, guys, in idolatry or in paganism, um, when one ate meat that had been sacrificed to idols, there was a certain meritorious attachment to it. That is, if I eat the meat sacrificed to the idols, that means I am holy. So one of the things that we had to, 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 to get rid of is that, that if they see me eating meat sacrificed to idols, which I had the perfect the Christian liberty to do, 
they might misunderstand the gospel, uh, thinking, I'm thinking that there's merit in me eating that meat, which was, of course, a pagan mindset. So I need to um, not eat meat that is um, strangled, uh, or strangled or dedicated to idols uh, and from blood. That, of course, was an Old Testament principle. And which I, something that I thought was very interesting, how did sexual immorality get thrown in there? Okay, I got the meats and I got the idols and I got that uh, blood thing. And avoid sexual immorality. That, ladies and gentlemen, need I say, is not a part of our sexual, our, our Christian liberty. Why did it get tossed in there? Well, it's interesting, guys, that in the New Testament, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, you know the statement in verse 3 where it says, and this is your sanctification? You remember, and there's a colon there, and the summary statement, the summary statement was, keep yourself from fornication. Keep yourself from sexual sin. I think the idea is, and this is a bit of a guess on my part, but in paganism, ladies and gentlemen, when the pagans were worshiping, their services were downright orgiastic. They were orgies. And not only was meat being eaten and people were drunk, but there's all kinds of um, uh, sexual immorality impurities that's going on in this stuff. And so the church steps forward and says, you know what they are? By all costs, avoid everything that smacks of that. The church is being given a morality. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, there is liberty galore. But in the side of that liberty, there is also a very definitive morality expected of us. Everything that looks like them, avoid it. Everything that makes you, um, confuses the world that you're a pagan, or a, avoid it. Now, and it may be that you have perfect liberty to go do it, or drink it, or watch it. But because it smacks of all of the practices of paganism, don't do it. So that's what they tell the church. That's what I want us to do. <laughs> to abstain from those things that would cause weaker brothers to stumble, live in, a, in the context, a context of abject morality, Alright, I, I got I got two minutes. Um, the letter you see in verses 29 through uh, 22 to 29, it is the controversy is settled. It's over. This is the first document of the early church that you find in verses 24 and following, uh, and it does three basic things. Number one, they they disassociate themselves entirely from the Judaistic position. What the Judaizers were teaching, we have nothing to do with it. Number two, they do make clear in this letter that the men that are being sent did have their full and complete support and approval. And number three, um, they enunciate their unanimous decision. And you will notice in verse 28, very interestingly, for it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. How did they decide? They decided by yielding to the leadership and voice of the Holy Spirit among them. How did they hear that? It was probably... How did they settle this, ladies and gentlemen? You know how it was settled? In the context of Christian morality and debate. Dialogue. Discussion. Maybe even some dissension every now and then. But it was done in the, under the power and authority and, and 
unction of the Holy Spirit, and people arrived at the truth by wrestling intellectually, rationally, using rational arguments. That's what James does. He, he refers to Amos and says, there's my position because out of the prophets of the Old Testament, they predict that. You know, they're reasoning. Don't ever give that up, ladies and gentlemen. Don't ever, don't ever fall into the trap of thinking that some kind of doctrinal debate is less than spiritual. It is not. Truth, you know, i got to show you this too. This is so, so interesting. Look at verse 24. Since we have heard that some who went out from us have troubled you with words unsettling your souls. Tell me, ladies and gentlemen, what is it that unsettled the people of God's souls? What was it? What would you say? Falsehood. False teaching. It was a disturbance and unsettling to the souls of God's people. If I love you, I'll settle for nothing but the truth for you. If I want to see you damned, then I'll play fast and loose with the truth. Like you're seeing in the Episcopal Church. May God have mercy on their souls, ladies and gentlemen. But to do that to the Word of God is to jeopardize the souls of men and women. And anybody who can sit idly by and say, Oh, well, let's just be tolerant. That is not love, ladies and gentlemen. You hate me if you will allow me to stand on falsehood. Because falsehood will damn me. It's unsettling to your souls to be taught anything other than what squares with the Scriptures. And oh, that you would be so blessed as to have somebody that would teach you nothing but pure, unmitigated truth. Real quickly, verses 30 through 35, the whole church is summoned, the letter is read, and the, out, and the outcome is, look at verse 31, they rejoiced. The controversy arose, the meeting solved the controversy, the letter is sent, uh, the truth is proclaimed, and the people of God joy in the fact that they have the truth. Celebrate that, ladies and gentlemen. Celebrate truth. That's the things that will quiet your soul and put you on some kind of firm foundation. Anything less does nothing but trouble you. Let's quit. Our Father, I pray that you will use the, the teaching ministries of this church, the pulpit, the lectern, the podium, the... the um, around the table, the grace group, every place, to bring people face to face with what is true, even though that renders us uncomfortable short term. No peace is worth having at the expense of truth. So, Father, unction us, all of this, this church's teachers, from, the, from those who teach the first graders to those who teach... Adult classes, unction us all to grace our people with that which will quiet and calm the, the frenzied soul. Truth. Truth that grows out of this glorious book. We pray, of course, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you and good night.